Let us pray. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Illuminate our way and give us all the strength to move on. In Jesus' name, amen. It started with an innocent question. Teacher, the lawyer, the religious scholar, asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the question wasn't so innocent. It was a test, it says, one that he hoped would trip Jesus up. But Jesus responds with his own question, kind of like I would with my own children. What do you think? What's in the scripture? If you notice, we started with a scholar trying to trap Jesus, but now Jesus is doing the one, the one doing the testing. And since this guy is a scholar, he has an answer straight from the Bible on hand. First, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God, he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind. Then, he caps it off with Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. The way to eternal life, according to Jesus, is to love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself, because Jesus says, bingo, A+. Plus. You pass the test, love God, love your neighbor, now go and actually do it. Do it, Jesus says, and you'll, etern- you'll know exactly what eternal life is all about. So Jesus avoided the trap, and then he sprung his own. But this guy isn't finished yet. He tries to turn it around again on Jesus. Okay. Love God, love neighbor, I get it. But answer this one then. Who then, he asks, who then is my neighbor? Again, like the first question Sounds innocent enough, a matter of clarification. Who's my neighbor? So I can love them, of course. But again, the text says that this guy has hidden motives. He asked the question not because he was interested in hearing Jesus' answer. He asked, who is my neighbor? It says because he wanted to, quote, justify himself. The question was a self-justifying question. He's clearly looked at his own life, saw that some people, saw some people he didn't love, maybe even people he couldn't love, and he was looking for a good justification for his own behavior to prove he'd still done right. There's got to be some people, Jesus, that I'm not justified in loving. I mean, we know from what the text says that he was justifying himself. We know that we're supposed to see him. He's a bad guy. Watch what he says. But if you think about, though, this guy's attitude is perfectly understandable. I mean, the scripture tells us he's justifying himself, so we know he's done wrong. But there are plenty of good reasons not to extend love to certain people, aren't there? And I don't mean the feeling of love. I mean the act of love 
loving. There are plenty of good reasons not to extend love to certain people. I know that often I don't always extend love to certain people. I don't stop to talk to street people because I figure they just want something from me, usually money, and since they saw that I was the minister, it's that extra. Bing, 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 bing. Besides, if I did give them money, they'd probably just use it for drugs, right? I'd just be enabling them. I'm doing them a favor by not helping. Or if a stranger tells me they're homeless, I don't let them spend the night in my house, even though I have the space, although I am very aware that some people in this congregation have. I'm worried about my family's safety. I'm worried about them taking my stuff, too. Besides, there are shelters, there are programs, there's just too much risk. And there are other alternatives. Or even more understandable, maybe, are folks intent on doing us wrong, and we know it. I remember someone calling into a radio show that was discussing the war in Afghanistan, saying, we can't hug the Taliban into submission, which is probably true. Loving those people seems naively ineffective at best. Not to mention people in our own lives who have harmed us personally. These are people who don't want or even need our love. Really, through their actions, maybe they've given up their status as neighbor to begin with. Love of God is one thing, but love of neighbor is another, isn't it? And justifying himself to Jesus, the lawyer really has a point. There has to be a limit to our love. There's got to be a limit. Sometimes boundaries on love are justified. Sometimes they are. The problem with Jesus, though, is that he has a way of challenging our expectations. He has a way of pushing our moral limits and boundaries to the extreme and even breaking them. He has a way of taking our perfectly good justifications and shredding them to pieces. In response to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus doesn't get out a list and start naming off people of who isn't, uh, you know, gay and lesbian people, neighbor, uh, African-American people, neighbor, uh, you know, criminal, not neighbor, uh, you know, Nazis, not neighbor. Instead, he tells a story. Man was taking a journey from the city of Jerusalem to Jericho. He tells us, bad road, rocky crags, steep hills, full of thieves and robbers. So partway of the journey, the guy gets mugged. He's beaten, he's tossed in a ditch by the side of the road, and he's left for dead. He's left for dead, but by chance, though, there's a priest walking, you know, dressed just like me, you know, The priest works at the temple, just like me. Leads worship, just like me. Priest is one of the holiest, most religious, most pious people out there. That's where the comparison falls short. <laughs> but as holy as can, he can be, he passes by without stopping, okay? And then again, another person stops by. 
dress? Oh, kind of like me again, too. He's a different kind of priest. He's a Levite. Levites are descendant of the tribe of Levite, of Levi, way back in the chap first chapter of the Old Testament. So he's like the son of a son of a son of a priest. Super holy. Holiness runs in the family. But this guy, you know, passes by too. Ooh. Doesn't stop. Keeps going. Like the lawyer, though, who asked the question, you can't really blame these guys. They have good reasons for not stopping. First of all, it's a dangerous road. What if it's a trap? You know, he doesn't want to get mugged himself. I mean, there's no good two people ending up dead instead of one, right? I don't know if you've said that before. <laughs> Second, too, they have good religious, good moral reasons not to. Touching a dead body makes you ritually impure. I mean, it's hard for us to see that as a decent reason because we don't really believe that anymore. But imagine you'd been in contact with somebody with the Ebola virus. It's not only dangerous for you, but other people isolate themselves from you because it's like bringing a contagion into the home. There's this huge social and moral risk to helping out here. You can't be expected to put your life on the line, your community on the line, and everybody else. The risks, these people have good reasons not to help out. They're not just boo, hiss, clergy suck, like, I mean, which might be true, but. But that's exactly what happens. Somebody stops by. One last guy stumbles away by chance. This guy's a Samaritan. He comes on the scene, we're actually supposed to boo, hiss. Samaritans are the northern cousins to the people that the New Testament calls Jews, Judeans from the land of Judea. To Jesus' original hearers, these people are religious heretics, ethnically impure because they intermarry with foreigners. You don't want anything to do with Samaritans, but this Samaritan's the only one who stops and helps this guy. It says he was moved with pity. He bandages the guy up. He disinfects his wounds, although apparently pouring wine and oil into a wound is really bad for it, so don't follow his advice exactly. He takes him on his horse. He brings him to the nearest inn. He nurses him to health. He says, here's some money for him to get better, and if it takes more money, just put it on my tab. Do whatever it takes for this guy to get well. And which of these three, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the guy who was tossed into the ditch? Having no alternative, the scholar, the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. Go, Jesus says. Go and do likewise. See, like the lawyer, we're always looking for that self-justification, aren't we? We have plenty of good reasons why not to love people like Jesus and the scriptures tell us to perfectly rational, well-thought-out reasons. But in response to the man's question, who is my neighbor, Jesus completely reframes the issue. The Samaritan, despite the risk, despite the, all the good reasons, threw himself completely into this wounded man's well-being. While the two priests' justification, their good excuses, got in the way of helping. And so the question no longer is, who is my neighbor? The question for Jesus is, are you being 
a neighbor. Jesus changes the definition of neighbor from the object of kindness to the one that's supposed to bestow it. To truly love God means to love our neighbors. And to truly love our neighbors as ourselves has nothing to do with who the neighbor is. Instead, it has everything to do with who we are. Loving God means being a neighbor. Maybe Mr. Rogers could sing, not, won't you be my neighbor? Maybe, I will be your neighbor, (laughs) you know? Full stop, without conditions, qualifications, excuses, no matter who it is, no matter what they've done, even if it's risky, even if it takes sacrifice, even if it takes all our mind, soul, and strength, when we stand before Jesus, there simply can be no more self-justification. No ifs, ands, or buts, no matter how good our reasons might be. No good excuse. It's tough, though, isn't it? Maybe even impossible. I mean, even with this knowledge, I continue to fall short over and over again all the time. But the point isn't to make us feel bad, feel unworthy, feel ashamed, although a little good shame sometimes about the right thing is good. It isn't to give us an unattainable goal. The goal is always to free us. Jesus is the great physician, especially in the Gospel of Luke. His judgment is always wrapped in mercy to heal us, to restore us, to make us new, and to make us better than we were. During the Armenian Genocide, Just over a hundred years ago, one and a half million Armenians, mostly Christians, were murdered by Ottoman Turks. Millions more were brutalized and forcibly deported. From the genocide comes the famous story of a Turkish officer who led a raid on the home of an Armenian family. The parents were killed and the daughters assaulted. The girls were actually given to the soldiers, and the officer kept the oldest daughter for himself. Eventually, this girl escaped, later training to become a nurse. In an ironic twist of fate, she found herself working in a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. And one night, by the dim glow of the lantern, she saw among her patients the face of the man who murdered her parents and horribly abused her sisters and herself. Without exceptional nursing, this man would die. And that's what this Armenian nurse gave, exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, this good Samaritan, I added that, you'd be dead. The officer, of course, was confused. He was a little scared, and he looked at the nurse, and he asked, why didn't you kill me? 
the officer looked at the nurse, sorry, the Armenian Christian replied, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies, who said, love your neighbor as yourself. This young woman had every excuse in the world, right? She would have been perfectly, completely justified in refusing to help this man. He'd hurt her if anyone deserved to die, or at least deserved shoddy nursing care. It was him. But the words of Jesus, love your enemies, shattered her excuses. He rendered for her all justifications null and void. This man didn't deserve mercy, but like the Samaritan, she was the one who showed mercy. In binding this man's wounds, her own soul was cured. Jesus freed this woman from her past, her pain, her history, mended through the love of God and neighbor. She was freed from her excuses, her justifications to experience eternal life here and now, a living icon of Christ. No more excuses. We have our excuses. We have plenty of justifications for not extending the love of neighbor to some people, some bad, and others exceedingly good. But like an axe to the frozen seas of our souls, Jesus shatters them all. It hurts at first, but he does so to bring forth the living water of eternal life here and now. And being freed from our excuses, our justifications, God gives us the power and the strength to love him more fully and to begin to love our neighbors as ourselves, to live in the imitation of Christ, to experience the freedom of eternal life, becoming more fully human, piece by piece, bit by bit, until we are finally made whole. So, may each of us be freed from our good excuses to experience God's goodness, life eternal, full life, life that lasts. It's strong medicine, but it's the cure for what ails our souls and our world. May we, as Jesus says, go and do likewise. Amen.